Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. This widow Petey Sweepy. <laughs> Sorry. God. That's so mean. It's because I turn into a pumpkin. You know, I become a complete dumbass after like 9.30. I know, and I just sit here on my computer until I fall asleep sitting at my computer. It's terrible. It's uh, terrible. Hey, what do you know of this uh, virtuality? Have you seen this movie? Oh, that's a movie name? No. It's a Peter Berg movie. Starring Nicolaj Costervaldo and Sienna Guillory. And Carrie Bichet. So you've heard of it. No, I just looked it up <laughs> real quick. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I actually, this is one of those uh, Netflix finds, right? So I, you know, I still have the subscribe by DVD 
plan. Do you still do the DVDs? I do. You do, of course. So I have the DVDs coming, and I've made my list over years now. And I don't really remember what's on it. And I usually only reorder right at the top, like when we do a show and I need to watch a movie that I don't already have. And uh, then sometimes I get, you know, it's like I already have the movies that we're doing for six or eight weeks out. And so I don't think about it. And my Netflix queue catches up to movies that I don't ever remember adding to the list. <laughs> and now we're there. And uh, That's so I've, fun. Got, <laughs> I've got some good ones showing up. Excellent. Yeah, so this is one that came today, and uh, you haven't seen it. I, I Apparently, there was a reason I put it on. This was probably back when I was in my Friday Night Lights uh, thing. Oh, it wasn't because of Battleship? I really want to watch more Peter Berg movies. Battleship was so awesome. <laughs> I think you're being sarcastic, <laughs> but I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, Peter. More Peter Berg sci-fi. Yeah, you know, I actually never saw Battleship, probably for the better. Probably. I didn't see it either, and I feel okay with that. You didn't see it, and you're mocking it. That's right. I'm one of those people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been a treat so far. You know, I will say, Peter Mm -hmm. Berg directed The Rundown, which I love. I love The Rundown. That was fantastic. Such a great movie. Yeah, I hated Very Bad Things that in and of itself was a very bad thing. Um, I, I enjoyed the movie Friday Night Lights. I never watched the TV show, but oh, I did. I did not the like movie. the movie. The movie was terrible. The movie was terrible. Who makes a movie like that? That's well, a terrible movie. You don't make a sports movie and make it end <laughs> with the protagonist team losing. Spoiler, it sucks. No, I don't. Anyway, I didn't think it was that bad. The Kingdom was all right. Hancock was all right. Battleship. I never even had interest in that one. And Lone Survivor, I actually still really want to see. Mm. All yeah. shot in the mountains of New Mexico. <laughs> uh, I, uh... I love the magic of the movies. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's Afghanistan, really. <laughs> uh. oh, that's good. Afghanico. <laughs> Um, yes, uh, so Peter Berg. I actually, I quite liked Friday Night Lights, the series, at least the first two or three seasons. Um, and so I give more credit to that. Gotcha. Certainly better than the film. Well, I look look forward to hearing what you think of virtuality. You know what I saw, speaking of movies that you never thought you'd end up watching? Tell me. Oh, tell me. I, just to make you happy... Watched Tommy Boy. (gasps) Did I hear a niner in there? (laughs) I actually really liked it. I really was surprised (laughs) that I left that movie going, wow, that was a lot funnier than I was expecting. I knew it. I knew it. I really was surprised. That's like the best Valentine you could ever get me. (laughs) 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 It was it was really funny and actually for like a week after watching it, my wife and I were both like, fat man in, in a, a little, little coat. coat. <laughs> you want me for a pillow? Uh, some, there are definitely some gems in there. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. It may be something that I actually watch again because it, <laughs> it does have a lot of funny lines. It's... Bob, you were there. <laughs> <laughs> So you say all these, uh, and I don't yeah. really remember them all that oh, well. See, but the problem I, is I can't do the setup because that's not that would then make us explicit. 
Yes, right. Oh, Tommy Boy. Great movie, kids. Yes, yes. I enjoyed it. <laughs> so there you go. Thank you. Check, check that off my bucket list. Totally checked. Yes. Consider it. My copy of your bucket list has hereby been amended. <laughs> Glad to know it. Hey, everybody, it's The Next Reel. Thank you so much for hanging out and listening to this show with us. I'm Pete Wright. That's Andy Nelson. And we spoil movies heavily from the beginning to the end. Big spoiler. You can find us at thenextreel.com, where you can read the blog stylings of the goodly, kindly Steve Sarmento. You can find our uh, our top lists uh, and listen to all the back episodes of both our special current uh, events or current release show of the film board uh, and our regular weekly show, The Next Reel, just me and Andy. So it's great fun all around. You should go. You should check it out. You should subscribe for free on iTunes. And and if you do, you should maybe leave us a nice comment somewhere or the other. Because, you know, it uh, it helps uh, other people find the show in the future. You say yeah. nice things. It's like paying it forward. That's what we're saying. Absolutely. And I hear we have some people who have paid it forward. They have, they have donated their good karma uh, in the karma bank in the sky. The big karma bucket. The big That's karma right. bucket. That's right. We've got J.G. Joseph over on uh, iTunes who uh, gave us five stars and said, Fantastic show for movie lovers. I've really come to look forward to this super entertaining weekly podcast for casual movie lovers. My go-to for Saturday morning runs. These guys know their stuff, but the conversations are extremely accessible. It's fun to learn new things about movies I've been enjoying for years. Keep it up, and thanks for the fantastic show. Thank you, J.G. Joseph. Happy Saturday to you, sir. Happy Saturday. I hope Don't you're trip. enjoying your run. <laughs> Look out. <laughs> Watch that construction ladder. Uh, Look up, it's uh, a yeah. piano. <laughs> I, I could keep going. I'll yes, save you, you that trouble. Uh, That's right. But I, I could go. I just want to... I could go. Hold you on. could. I'm Manhole. Know that, but <laughs> I think we're going to move on now. <laughs> Oh, oh, good. Okay, and then, so and then, the other one. The other one. Over on Flickchart, uh, we have a wonderful comment from Leisha Lynn. Oh, who's... we don't trust her at all. <laughs> She's commented before. She has it out for us now, I think. I think so. I, I think we disappointed her uh, a couple weeks ago. Thank you <laughs> <laughs> for rating The Abyss over Close Encounters. Cameron over Spielberg, tell me, how does The Abyss get made without Close Encounters and E.T.? What are you boys smoking? So we apologize that we disappointed you, but hopefully hopefully it won't happen again. Uh, if you were to rate, say, uh, a slingshot against, say, um, a bow and arrow, uh, which one would you rate as more impressive? Wow. Is this like weapon chart? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. Right. Uh, I I would pick a bow and arrow. I guess. I think that you would, uh, and and I think that you would, even though the slingshot uh, being invented was a direct predecessor to the bow and arrow. The bow and arrow could not exist without the slingshot. That doesn't mean the slingshot isn't a nice thing. It just means that this beautiful elvish bow is really something to behold. That's how I feel about the abyss. Next to close encounters. 
That was the most beautiful metaphor that I don't completely get, but but thank you for sharing. <laughs> I told you it's late, and I start getting <laughs> flappy. Elvish Bow or David and Goliath. All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you're mean. You know what you're supposed to do is just say, yes, Pete, you're so smart. Yes, Pete, you're so smart. <laughs> well, now it doesn't mean anything because I had to coach you. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot to read the script before we started. God. Oh. Uh, well, thank you, uh, Alicia Lynn. <laughs> it's, it is nice to hear, even if, uh, even I, if no, she doesn't like it's, us. You know what the funny thing is? Is that she's the one who's given us so many ideas for movies to talk about. Yes, absolutely. She's, thank you for trying to continually straighten us out. <laughs> she does. She works so hard at it. <laughs> I love that uh, she's out there. Yes, indeed. Andy, with that, I think you need to give us the update on Andy versus the people. You know, I, I, it's been a little rough spell for me. <laughs> yeah, having trouble shaking it. I am. I got to really sort things out this week. Yes, uh, you know, I, I thought I'd, you know, switch things up a little bit and, and do a little uh, animation and, and put something on there that, uh, you know, it, it, it didn't necessarily look that obvious. I guess that in the world of animation... A, an animated world can be pretty easily identified. That's that's all I can think of. But Cameron <laughs> L. Ryan came through right on the first image and nailed it as my neighbor Totoro. So, so congratulations, <laughs> you beat me again. <laughs> but oh. I'll be back. <laughs> so I'll keep I'll keep plugging away. See if I can come up with something this week that'll stump everybody. Wow. But yes, Cameron wait. L. Ryan is again entered into the drawing for our pony prize. Now, was this a bit, was, did this have anything to do with some sort of specific um, cinema architecture? Well, it's funny that you say that. And foolishly, you know, because she really nailed it several times when I put up architecture uh, as the image. And the first image I put up was a building, like a little hut. And she knew right away that that was uh, Totoro. She knows so. animated cinema architecture too. I know. You know, at it's... this point, I'm I am forced to dare you, sir, to put up no pictures of structures at all. That's what I'm going to do this week. <laughs> this has to be nary a structure in order to see if I can really uh, you know, best this best this this uh, unruly bunch. Ugh, the game is afoot. <gasps> oh. That I did do. I did watch all three of this season's Sherlock. Footnote. I mean, I just have to go back to our earlier conversation. I did do something great. It's great. I haven't watched any of those. Oh, stop it. I know. Let's talk about trailers. Let's. You know, did you see The Talented Mr. Ripley when it came out, like, uh... 2000 or 99 i did not see it in the theater i saw it a couple of years or a couple of a couple of whiles later you thought saw it eventually i did see it eventually well it was one of those films that it, i i liked it but it didn't uh it didn't like knock me out of my seat or anything like that but it is a film that has stuck with me over the years i find that the the story and uh, just the the this the nature of this character as he kind of 
creates these fake lives and moves through these other people's lives and kind of destroying them. I really enjoyed that that concept. And there are definitely some haunting images in that film that have, have stuck with me all this time. The film that Anthony Minghella directed, and it was back in 99. Well... Uh, this new film the, for the trailer I'm talking about is called The Two Faces of January, which is also based on a novel by Patri- Patricia Highsmith. And I now am, uh, I don't know, I guess I'm finding myself drawn to uh, this film in particular because the I, just the storytelling that she did. I, and the trailer looks really interesting. It looks dark. It's about a con artist and his wife who it looks like they're on vacation somewhere in Europe, um, supposedly on vacation. And then this mysterious stranger who comes into their uh, their lives. And this con artist starts getting pursued by people because I guess there's a cop that had been murdered. And so they have to use this stranger to help get out of the country and then it's just kind of how their lives end up getting intertwined. It looks really interesting. It's got Viggo Mortensen, Kirsten Dunst, and Oscar Isaac as the three principals. And so the world that Patricia Highsmith created in Talented Mr. Ripley, that's the first thing that drew me to this, is watching this trailer, I can see already that it looks like something that I will be drawn to, just the kind of the mysterious twists and turns that these characters are going to take over the course of the story. It's also produced by the producers who did Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which is a film I just loved. And it's written and directed by Hossein Amini, who did Drive, or who, who wrote Drive, which is a film I loved. So it's like, I, I feel like everything is, is going for this film and that makes me want to go, uh, go watch it. So The Two Faces of January, that's my trailer. Mm, I think it looks really good. Dark and twisty. And I love Viggo Mortensen playing kind of a, this dark character. It looks, uh, he looks kind of uh, evil and manipulative. He's another one of those that I just like working on stage or on screen. Like He's just, just an interesting guy to watch. He absolutely is. Yeah. Hey, speaking of uh, twisty, dark things, mm-hmm. uh, so is my trailer. Yeah, yours is. And you know what's ironic about this? It's a it's a uh, Richard Io. Oh, I can never pronounce this guy's name. You know his name? Ioade, Ioade. That sounded good. I, that's not one that I actually know. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you how you know him. I think you know him anyway. How's Richard that? Ioade. He's incredibly funny. This guy. He's incredibly funny. He's a British guy. Uh, he is. It, Definitely, um, you know, he's he's on the record as being kind of a, a, a Python guy. He's young. He is um, he's directed, I think, only one other feature film, but he's directed a bunch of TV. And of course, he was in um, for uh, a long time. He was in uh, the the it crowd, the IT crowd on on uh, uh, in Britain hmm. uh, where he plays this. Uh, this was when the it's the the two guys and the. Uh, the girl are the uh, the IT department of a huge company, and they're in the basement, and it's a comedy that, that is about them in the basement. And he's hysterically funny, not at all deep and dark and twisty in anything else that I feel like I've seen him in. Uh, and then he is also the writer and director of this film, The Double, uh, starring uh, Jesse Eisenberg as uh, twice, 
mm-hmm. who is it's a it's it, it is supposedly a comedy, right? This film, The Double, it's it is listed <laughs> is it as really? a comedy, and it is it is billed as quote a comedy centered on a man who is driven insane by the appearance of his doppelganger. But I do not, and check me on this, I would not characterize it as a comedy by watching the trailer. The trailer has nothing funny in it whatsoever. Nothing funny. Uh, and, and yet, given this guy's uh, comedy credentials, I will absolutely go see it uh, and uh, give it a chance. It stars another name that is going to confound me, uh, Mia Wasikowska. Mm-hmm. Yep, Jesse Eisenberg, Chris O'Dowd, and uh, Wally Shawn is in it. Yeah, Sally Hawkins. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's uh, there's lots of people. Yeah, uh, uh, Patty Considine is in it. So I mean, it's Noah, got Noah Taylor. It, yeah, it definitely has uh, you know comic DNA in it. But it's how does it not look funny? Yes, yes, yes. It does not. <laughs> but it looks interesting. Yeah. The thing that also makes it not seem like a comedy is the fact that it's based on the novel by Dostoevsky <laughs> who it's is like... everybody knows one of early <laughs> Soviet comic <laughs> writers yes yes he is everybody knows that <laughs> <laughs> oh man oh Fyodor <laughs> aye, aye, aye. yeah all right so when, does got, when does yours uh, open? You know what? It, it was made last year. It's kind of uh, been languishing in distribution hell a little bit. It is. Uh, it opens in the UK on April 4th of this year, and uh, it will hit the US sometime after that. As far it's as like May, May 9th. Oh, you have a date. Where do you have the date? Look at you IMDb. tracking it down. I'm looking at it right now. I don't see it. Oh, March 24th. I see May 9th, limited. See, I see. Coming soon in theaters March 24th. Oh, that's New Directors, New Films Film Festival. I don't even know what you're talking about. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so it actually will come out three times. So see yes, it somewhere. Yes. So just like the double. Yeah. Looks I, uh, so weird. And mine doesn't have a release date in the U.S., so. Sad. Aww. Aww. <laughs> hey, let's, uh, let's talk about this movie. Yes, let's. Alan Bauer has a very successful business. Okay, Bauer, you're ruined. You're finished. You're a ghost in this business. How'd you like some bananas at cost? Deal. He's got the wisdom and support of his brother, Freddy. I love this guy. Do you hear me? I love him. Give me a kiss. What's the matter? You too big? Come here. I just want to meet a woman. I want to meet a woman, and I want to fall in love. Not much. And worst of all, Alan Bauer feels with all his heart that he doesn't have one. Freddy, something in here is not working. There are worse organs not to be working. Where to? Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And then, one day, accidentally, from out of the blue, it happens. Just looking at her is pure ecstasy. Just touching her is a lifelong fantasy come true. Just being in love with her plunges him into a wondrous world of rapture and enchantment. Just one problem stands in his way. A little secret she's trying to keep all to herself. There is a mermaid in New York City. How come she's got legs? 
out of the water, she has fins in the water. What about a woman showing up naked in a public place, Freddie? Well, I'm bored, of course. Can I come in? No! All right, let me in. I'll, I'll be right there. I'm just changing. That girl is a mermaid. All my life, I've been waiting for someone. And when I find her, she's... She's a fish. Nobody said love's perfect. She's really hungry. Daryl Hannah, Tom Hanks, and John Candy. Splash, a fantastic tale about a fantastic tale. So this is Tom Hanks. This is early Tom Hanks, huh? Yeah. He was a wee lad, a wee boy. Yes, right right toward the beginning. It's not the beginning, but it's definitely toward the beginning. Well, because what was the beginning, right? So after uh, what he did, uh, he hung out with uh, his, old Pete Scolari. Yeah, he did his TV stuff. Uh, well, Bosom, baby, bosom Buddies. Bosom was, Babies. Bosom Babies. That was the, the prequel TV series that uh, I'm actually writing right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. That's terrible. Uh, that was 80 to 82. And uh, But he had been doing a lot of guest TV spots on, like, The Love Boat, on Taxi, uh, Happy Days. Um, his first theatrical film was He Knows You're Alone, which is a really bad horror film about a serial killer who stalks and kills uh, brides before they uh, get married. And it's a really, it's just a really <laughs> terrible film. And Tom Hanks' uh, uh, girlfriend, is it his girlfriend or is it him who gets decapitated and their head ends up at the bottom of a fish tank? I'm not going to lie to you. I never saw this movie. Oh, I did. I did. Yeah. Yes, I had it on VHS, believe it or not. You actually owned it. Well, you know, when you're a Tom Hanks fan like me, I pretty much had everything that I could. Yes, I know. Sad but true. So he did that, and then he did a TV movie, Mazes and Monsters, Um, kind of that Dungeons and Dragons thing uh, that he did. (laughs) And... (laughs) I love this. Yeah, all this, all this good Please stuff. Please keep going. But but it was in Happy Days. You know, he played Dr. Dwayne Twitchell. And he had one episode in Happy Days where he, was a, he, he comes in, and he had been, I guess, as a kid, the, the Fonz was, was quite the bully. And nowadays, you know, they wouldn't stand for that. But back in the, you know, 60s and 50s and the Happy Days days, it was okay to be a bully. And so the Fonz bullied this kid. And years later, he's all grown up. He had like become a, a black belt and all this stuff. And he comes in to beat up the Fonz. And it's played by Tom Hanks who comes in. And he has this great moment where he's just talking about how great this moment is to finally be able to you know take the Fonz down and everything. And little did he know that that uh, Lowell Gantz and Babalu Mandel, uh, who were had been doing some writing on Happy Days here and there, um, they were there that day, and they saw him, and they thought he had great energy, and they happened to uh, have written uh, Night Shift with Ron Howard, and 
and uh, Brian Grazer and the film that they made before Splash. And they were working on Splash with Ron Howard, and they were trying to find somebody to play Alan Bauer, the lead in that film. And they said, well, this guy's really good. And they initially had been thinking Tom Hanks because they liked him in Bosom Buddies and stuff, but they were thinking of him as Freddy, somebody who could have kind of the comedy moments. Um, but when they, they saw his, the presence that he had, they're like, oh, maybe we should try him as the lead. And they, they brought him in and, and kind of read for him as the lead, and, and that was history. Yeah. Yeah, and that, yeah. I you know, I like Tom Hanks. I do. How did this how did this movie stand? When's the last time first of all, usual thing. When's the last time you watched it? Before well, this week. Well, I have the 20th anniversary DVD, so that came out in 04. So I know I saw it in 04 after I picked it up. And I feel like I watched it some time between then and now. So, say five years. Okay. It's been much longer than that for me. Yeah. Possibly, uh, well, I don't want to say 30 years, because that, be, that, that would be ridiculous. I know I've seen it several times, but it, it's been at least 10 years since, mm-hmm. I've, since I've seen it. And, um, wow, you know, I don't know. Is it just that uh, movies in the 80s are <laughs> incredibly dated? <laughs> I mean, it's not just, you know, what they wear and their, you know, sort of general appreciation of, you know, earth tones and shoes. <laughs> uh, but but just the... And crimped hair. <laughs> <laughs> and crimped hair. That was striking. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, I I had trouble with the first half of this movie. And I, I had trouble with Tom Hanks in the first half of this movie. Oh really? I did, and that surprised me. Um, in general, I found it the the first half of the movie just sort of plods along, um, and I it it it's sort of funny. Um, it, it's like it tries to be funny. It tries to have some humor in it, and I I yet I'm I'm not. I don't find myself laughing. I don't I don't necessarily find the the John Candy the sort of buffoonish uh, older brother. Uh, particularly funny. I I don't find much of the relationship, the, their relationship as the sort of co-owners of this, uh, of their father's fruit business, distribution business, uh, particularly funny. The secretary is funny. Uh, that was issued the electrocuted secretary. Uh, was funny. But generally, awesome. I I had some trouble with that, and I you know I didn't quite understand it. Like uh, you know why am I having trouble with this until I I went back and I read the uh, the Ebert's original review. Mm-hmm. Did you read this? I didn't. Uh, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna read it to you, but I I'm gonna stall just a little bit because I didn't have it up. Um, so he made a point that I had not thought about, but totally made sense to me in my view of this film. Uh, and so I am going to read that to you. Uh, he picking up in the middle after he talks about the uh, the story, the background of the story. All right, now that's the situation. But the situation isn't going to be enough. We need some characters here. The mermaid is just fine, as played by the lovely Daryl Hannah. She's young and healthy and touchingly naive. But what about the guy who falls in love with her? It's here that the movie makes its catastrophic casting mistake. You see, they figured they have a comedy as long as the girl has a tail and a romance whenever she has legs. 
so to give her a romantic leading man when they should have given her a lonely guy who could swim. The leading man is Tom Hanks. He's conventionally handsome and passably appealing, and he would do in a secondary role. He'd be great, for example, as the straight arrow brother. Instead, they make him the mermaid's lover, and they cast John Candy as the brother. Uh, yeah, he talks about John Candy a little bit. They should have made Candy the lover and Hanks the brother. Then we'd be on the side of this big lunk who suddenly has a mermaid drop into his life and has to explain her to this creepy swinging single's brother. Plus, there's this sweet touch that this transcendently sexy mermaid has fallen for the tubby loser with the heart of lust and not for the slick brother. See what I mean? Instead, they go the other way. John Candy is not used much in this movie. Tom Hanks comes across as a standard young male lead, and they have to concoct a meaningless and boring subplot in order to make the movie long enough. Don't they know in Hollywood that once all the geniuses think they've finished with the screenplay, you've got to rotate everything 180 degrees, and then you've got a movie? So that's the Ebert. I would not go as far as to say it's a catastrophically terrible casting mistake, uh, but I would say I see his point. I found myself not buying the relationship between Daryl Hannah and Tom Hanks. I didn't find him. Uh, I, I didn't find that a compelling enough um, kind of uh, reason for her to become the fish out of water uh, in this film. And and you, and you felt that having John Candy be that guy would make it compelling? Well, that's my problem. I don't necessarily think that John Candy would have been that guy either, uh, but certainly somewhere in between. Um, I, I just felt like uh, Tom Hanks was a little bit too perfect. Hmm. Well, and that's, you know, I, I think the nature of that is that He's not supposed to be the the uh, comedy in the story. He, you know, they've they talk about this. Ron Howard and, and Tom Hanks both talk about this. How in the in the read throughs, Tom was when he was first there. I mean, it was him and Daryl and Eugene Levy as Walter Cornbluth and John Candy and uh, everyone like uh, Ron Howard and Brian Grazer are all in the room, and they were doing a read through and Tom having just come off of Bosom Buddies and everything and working with these SCTV stars and Ron Howard, he was pushing for laughs in the read-through and he was trying to, to be a funny guy because he was you know, trying to impress the crowd. And Ron Howard came up and said, look, you're not the, the guy who needs to be the funny guy in this. You are the guy who needs to have the, the, the you're the love story guy. You are the, the person who needs to have that honesty throughout this story, not the comedy. Let them handle the comedy. That's why they're here. Your story is the romantic comedy or the, the romantic part of this story. And we need you to be just an honest character in this. And I buy into that. And it sounds like it's just something that isn't working for you. But I, I really do buy into the, uh, the honest performance of Tom Hanks in this. And I, I find myself buying into uh, the relationship between him and uh, and Madison. And, I, you know, I think a lot of that comes from, it's a, I mean, it's a fantasy film. You kind of get that vibe of this, this story. Um, obviously, the fact that she's a mermaid, it kind of makes it this, this fantasy. But right from the start, right out of the gate, you are introduced to this situation back 20 years ago when Alan is a boy and he sees something under the water as his family's on this boat trip off of Cape Cod 
he jumps in and it's a mermaid and and there's instantly this connection and you see that there's a bond between these two characters and later in the film you see how that's kind of created this uh, relationship between the two of them and I really buy into that I buy into the fact that uh, you know they meet they fall in love and the fact that he you know is having love issues because he hasn't found what he needs and it's because you know he it's it's this fantasy story where he's you know he's known what he's needed since he's a kid and he hasn't been able to find it because he hasn't been around so so i don't know i guess it doesn't bother me that he's not you know the funny man well and i think you i I think that nails it for me i think that actually is the problem for me and maybe it's because when i see tom hanks at this age my expectation is bosom buddies uh and and it's the comedy but i think the feeling i get in that first hour and why the first hour stands up from stands out to me is that it feels restrained it feels awkward that tom hanks who is a naturally funny person in funny roles um, even in roles that are, um, you know, where he can be the straight guy but still have some natural humor, uh, it feels artificially restrained in order to let uh, these other comic elements come through. Uh, you know, I'm I'm thinking specifically about some of his later romantic comedies, right, when you talk about, you know, um, Sleepless in Seattle, for example, where he's just a fantastically um, funny, uh, in a fantastically funny relationship with his son um, that I, I think really shows his natural comedy in a way that doesn't distract from um, you know the the romance part, and of course this is that's you know years later, and he is a different actor and a much more mature man, and I, I of course get that, but um, but I feel like this movie really showcases um, where that restraint comes at a disservice of the film, and I think well, well go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and I don't know if I feel that it's as restrained as as you're feeling it is. Um, I think that he has plenty of comedic moments throughout the film. I mean, it always stands out for me the moment where he's out. He and his brother are kind of the, uh, I can't remember what the role at weddings is called when you're telling people which side of the aisle to sit on. Yes, uh, the ushers. The ushers, right. They're they're doing that. And he, while they're guiding people in, um, he's having this conversation with his brother about, you know, his why his girlfriend left him, how he doesn't have any love, he doesn't have any love to give and all this stuff. And people keep asking about her. Yeah, and it's just, I mean, that explosion that he, the way that that keeps building as people keep asking about her, I mean, is just so funny. And I think it's, to me, that is like that perfect Tom Hanks uh, comedy timing. And I think that it's completely shining through for me. I, you know, you, that's a good example. That is definitely a good example, and I, I think you're right in that sequence. But I think the, the the general tone for me in the first hour is that is that of restraint and and it's frustration. And and when the film picks up for me, it's it, it's in that second hour when she's actually uncovered, um, and uh, you know, is first she's making a more aggressive attempt to tell him the big secret uh, when they decide that you know she says yes they're going to get married. And um, and then she's uncovered at the presidential dinner, and we begin the the sort of caper part of the film. And I think that that becomes um, just mu- it it really becomes a much more infused with energy and and excitement. And I think you know um, 
uh, well, that's the, really the last act of it. Yeah, though. that's that's the last last act of it, and um, we have the uh, uh, what's the doctor's name, um, Doctor Cornbluth. Cornbluth yeah. um, becomes a um, you know a I, I don't. I don't know what the deal is with Eugene Levy in that first hour. He's just, he's, he's not a very appealing, um, sort of sociopathic, uh, doctor, uh, well, researcher. I, I, but, but then in the second act, when he becomes, when he, you know, he becomes a much more, uh, interesting character when he becomes a character that is, um, less driven. And I think it's just as an actor, he's much more affable in that role, in the secondary role than in the primary role of the film. So, uh, and I think when you look at his roles since Splash, um, you know, as well, it's it's much more the, the affable part uh, than the, the kind of weird, obsessive part, uh, which I, I didn't find as appealing. So um, I, I don't know. I, I love him as Cornbluth, and I think that his bits with the moron twins are, are I don't know, they always make me laugh. I mean, you know, I come from a place with this film where I, I've seen it probably, uh, you know, hundred times more than you have. I mean, yeah. I grew up watching this film. I mean, I, I had forgotten how much of this film I have memorized <laughs> and sitting and watching it. I mean, I was just quoting along with the lines and my wife kept looking at me almost flabbergasted that, you know, this is, here's a film that I hadn't seen in five or 10 years. And I was still like quoting the lines like I just saw yesterday. So the, you know, it's this, it was the Swedish doctor bit that has me in stitches every time. I mean, that's uh-huh. the, the like stuff that happened, drops in that second half of the movie, the capers bits. I, I mean, I'm totally with you. I, I really like it. And so you just don't like the love, you don't like the, the romantic love story side of the film. No, I really, I find it like just sort of dry and, and not very interesting. And, and I find Daryl Hannah is sort of, you know, she's, dare I say, and I'm gonna, I know I'm going to get letters. You're going to piss me off too. Say it. <laughs> I, I don't want to compare her to Costner, but she's a little wooden in this film. What? Okay, okay. <laughs> Step back a second. Step back a second. This is a person who is a mermaid. She has no sense of of our world, right? She lives under the water. She comes up, doesn't doesn't know any English or anything. And uh, well, actually, step back even before that. I'm when, stepping. When we first meet her. It's when she rescues Tom Hanks after he jumps off the boat um, and gets his head hit when Mr. Fat Jack uh, <laughs> decides to go get the little boat. Another great moment, which I just always laugh about. But, <laughs> but Daryl, uh, we see her first kind of peeking over the, the bushes and everything, looking at him in the sand, and, and they have that conversation, and, or he has that you know, trying to figure out who she is and all that, and she comes up and kisses him and jumps in the water. Right from the start, there is something about her that has this, this innocent uh, nature to it, and it's almost like this animalistic quality, and there's like nothing... Um, in her performance that I find that stands out as, uh, as um, she's, she's thinking too much about it. She, she really comes across as this very honest, almost, you know, curious being that doesn't really, she's trying to understand things and whether it's, you know, exploring trying to figure him out on the Island after saving him or watching TV or, you know, walking down the street with him and trying to figure out what everything is. And even like the way that she eats the lobster, everything that she does in the story, all is just this, this honest nature to it that I 
think is so far from being wooden. I find it uh, like 100% committed to just being like this this totally different type of being. Yeah, and I feel like she's just dragging around a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, and even the sequences, now I'm going to give you the lobster. The lobster, I think, is funny. Uh, and when she has that exchange and says, oh, I'm sorry, that's just the way we eat lobster where I'm from. You know, I, I find that I, I find that amusing. But the pieces that I, I remember, the, the like Keystone moments, right, the trailer moments, mm -hmm. uh, when she says her name and the, all the TVs explode. Mm -hmm. I remember that as much funnier than I experienced it. Uh, and and it just it, it just didn't quite uh, hold up. It was just awkward and and uh, dry uh, to me in this. And and that's what I mean by maybe this is just an experience of watching a film that that is just naturally appears dated. I I don't know, but um, the 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 romance part of it um, left me wanting. Well, and you know, I think that there very much could be that to it. I mean, this is a 30-year-old film with 30-year-old sensibilities and you know, comparing it to kind of just the modern comedy pacing and the modern romantic comedy uh style of filmmaking and everything. I think that there uh definitely is some uh, a lot of elements that have kind of changed and grown over those 30 years. And so yes, if you're not kind of stepping back and putting yourself into that place where it's, you know, looking at this is a film that was made 30 years ago, then you may have a really hard time getting into it. Possibly, like, but you know what, Andy, to your point, I mean, we did Pale Rider, and that's a film made in 85, and I don't think, I I, I mean, I absolutely wouldn't well, say... Come, do, and it's a period it, film, though. I don't know if that's a... I mean, yeah, period maybe that's films the same are, thing. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I'd compare that to 310 to Yuma in a in a very, you know, favorable light. And Well, here, let me let me test this on you because and I, I don't know if this is a good test and i don't know if it's going to work in my favor but <laughs> i'm going to try it anyway okay no this so, is fair that's fair th yeah I, these are the top 10 films from 1984 good of which splash is one of them and i think well okay let me just read through the list beverly hills cop number one film for the year ghostbusters indiana jones and the temple of doom which we've talked about on the show gremlins the Karate Kid, Police Academy, Footloose, Romancing the Stone, Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, and Splash. I would challenge you to say that all of those films have dated elements in them. And I enjoy those films. Well, most of those films. I haven't seen some of them in quite a while. And I probably won't be watching Police Academy again. But Are you, I, would say, yeah. I would say for the most part... Um, while those films are still vastly enjoyable and entertaining, they still are very dated. Romancing the Stone has some amazingly dated elements in it, but I still think it's a great, uh, you know, adventure romp. And I think Splash is, is a great romantic comedy uh, with this fantastical element of the mermaid thrown in, even if it is dated. Yeah, you know, it's funny, I because I know, so I don't know where you're looking at that list, but I just, I, you know, I brought it up on IMDb, the top U.S. grossing feature films in 1984. And so, I, you know, you, you read so fast, I didn't quite get it. But but the list that I'm looking at has Ghostbusters at the top, yep. which I say absolutely holds up. Well, I just watched Ghostbusters yeah. uh, a couple weeks ago, and I think it is so dated. 
I mean, I still enjoy it, but it is a very dated film. It doesn't feel dated to me. Yeah. Like oh, Splash it feels does. so. Da- it feels more dated to me than Splash. <laughs> Are you kidding? I am not kidding. Okay, uh, Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> I feel it's dated. It's very enjoyable, but I, I haven't. Feel I, it's I very watched dated. it probably about two years ago. Uh, and I didn't get that same feel. I, it is date. It feels like an 80s film, but it, it doesn't uh, feel to me like Splash does. Uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, again, that, that well, there is a I period think, film, and I that think doesn't... I period films, yeah, period films kind of out of there. Uh, Karate Kid doesn't hold up at all. No, that's a that's, hot mess of date. Yeah, uh, And uh, same thing, I think, with Police Academy and Footloose. I didn't Gremlins, I think, is is a fantastic film. Yeah, that's, that's but also feels, but it also feels dated. Yeah, but it's a little bit. I don't know, Phoebe Cates, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I, but loose, loose kind of, yeah, I mean, it's it, you know, it's it's just one of those things where I, I feel like it, it could be the genre. I mean, it Ghostbusters, could be that I don't Beverly like Hills the Cop. '80s. That's possible. I well, was, but you yeah. like Ghostbusters. You like Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> I mean, see, you're you're. I don't think that's it. I think it's you don't like. The romantic comedy in the '80s. Yeah, that's possible. I wouldn't be able to comment on something like *Romancing the Stone*. It's been too long since I've seen it. That's a good one. Would it? How does it compare to you with uh, *Splash*? Well, I, I like I said, it's it's dated. I feel that it's dated, uh, but as an adventure film, I still think it really holds up. But you hear Alan Silvestri's music kick in in there, and it, it's just like, wow, this is definitely of a different time yeah but it is a lot of fun you step back into that time it's like any film it's like going back to watching some of the great 70s films or or the films from the 50s whatever films that are of the time um that aren't necessarily like the kind of the the classics i feel like there's going to be something that dates them we've talked about this before and i think the 70s though uh the films that were particularly of the time of the 70s hold up actually better than some of the films of the 80s. The films of the 80s, which seem so sort of saccharine and plastic, uh, and and we don't kind of regain that sense of reality. This film feels unreal to me. It feels unnatural. Even the fantasy part of it that I'm supposed to acknowledge is unreal. Uh, it, it feels, uh, it, it just feels a bridge too fake. Wow to me just even the romance even the relationship of it and it it doesn't uh get interesting to me until it picks up uh speed in the second act where where it becomes uh, a little bit more volatile till the third act third act yeah so so there you go that makes me sad i know it does and i felt bad coming into this i really did this is another taxi driver maybe no, not so much. I would watch this before Taxi Driver any day of the week. <laughs> oh, man. I would, too, actually. But I, I am a bit of a junkie. What can I say? Uh, now, how does this hold up to Splash 2 or Splash also? <laughs> oh, Splash 2. Man, that's, oh, that's Amy Yazbeck. That's a decision that Disney made that uh, really was just... A cash grab, just a terrible decision on their part. It's not even a cash grab, really. I mean, they did it as their their Disney Sunday movie. It's like a two-part Disney Sunday movie. It's like, you know, I don't know what they were thinking with that. It just was a bad decision all around, and it should never have happened. It's so funny. The promotional picnic, the promotional picture looks like a Sunday picnic on the cast of Dallas. 
<laughs> like just before Jr. got shot. Yeah, it's terrible. That's terrible not stuff. good. And it doesn't even it doesn't even fit in context of the final moments of the film. No. You know where she says, you know, if you come with me, you can never go back. And Splash Two, yeah, they come back. Yeah, and then they come back, and then yeah. they decide to stay. It's like, oh, just it's not stupid. not good. Yeah. Uh, so the uh, you know I know it's just gonna you you I'm buy crying it, on the you, inside. You buy it hook, line, inside. and sinker all the way through the uh, the end. You like the way it ends. You like the big climax. I love everything about it. I, it's <laughs> is this one of those that because I'm middling to fair on this film, you like it even more. I'm gonna. I this is my favorite film of all time now, <laughs> Mister. <No. laughs> Splash versus Network. I dare you. <laughs> oh no! I but I do really love this film. I I no I see it I I recognize that and I and I I was just not as I I think probably not as touched by this film in the when I saw it in the eighties, um for one reason or another I don't know, and it, you know I mean it at the time nineteen eighty four it did really well for itself it was nominated for best original screenplay so you know, so take <laughs> no, that what's up with that that little bit of insanity. Oh come on! <laughs> <laughs> How do you think this uh, this shines as a Ron Howard uh, joint? You know, it's I, you know he had a a great start. Obviously, I mean, working in the industry since he was a wee wee lad, I think that he uh, you know got his start working with uh, some of the uh, uh, Roger Corman projects, and Night Shift was his first solo project and uh it did well enough for him to kind of you know make a mark and get another project it didn't uh do gangbusters or anything but splash was the next film that he did and this was a uh, a tricky film uh i believe it was actually an idea that brian grazer had that um i think the way that it works i think he had bruce j friedman write the script Brian didn't like that script, and then they said, hey, let's bring Lowell and Babalu on. They did such a great job on Night Shift, and, and so they brought those two on to, to rework the script, and they came up with the script that we have now, and it's, um, I, I think it's a great script. I think Ron Howard did a great job telling this story and, and making this film, and, uh, you know, I, it, it, I didn't... Um, go into this remembering this but tom hanks i mean his career really you know was birthed out of this project uh, with ron howard who he has now gone on to act in uh, four of his films he did this he did apollo 13 and then he did the uh, um, uh, da vinci code and angels and demons films so they definitely have created a, a really solid working relationship that has lasted the test of time and they kind of keep coming back and working on projects with each other, and I'm guessing that they probably will continue to do so. Um, I think that this shows a lot of great skill for, uh, I do, I know you have your issues, but I think it shows a, a, a solid director telling a story with good actors that, um, that know how to, they get the jokes, they fit within the context of what the story that they're trying to tell is, they understand the fantasy elements, and... Uh, uh, I think that Ron was able to put all of that in place as it needed to be in order to tell a very effective story. I mean, I don't think this film would have done 
nearly as well as as it did if uh as i mean maybe somebody but i think ron howard really knew how to tell the story right i think ron howard has a good uh voice for these sort of um fantastic journeys uh and and i think he's a he's a natural at it uh, and, and I think he, that shown that shows in in his more sophisticated films too. I mean, you get a a, a kind of a great um, a sort of f- fantastic journey when you look at films like Apollo thirteen, and when you look at um, 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 well, I was going to start with Cocoon, you know, and and uh, but but it gets more sophisticated when you look at sort of Apollo thirteen and and mm. you know leading up toward the the present um you know i think he has a a good sense of structure it's a um and and a good sense of of where formula really works well yeah uh and and why formula is a formula um you know and that that i think is has been really foundational to his his sensibilities as a director yeah he really has kind of built a career on the hollywood structure and mm-hmm. the hollywood formula of of telling stories. I mean, you look at his list of films and I mean, there are a lot of them on here that I just don't like at all because they feel so formulaic. Um, but that doesn't mean that he didn't make an effective film. It's just for me, it didn't, it didn't work out, you know? I Uh, I will tell you one of his films is one of my potential guilty pleasure films and it's not Grand Theft Auto 1977. Don't tell me it's how the Grinch stole Christmas. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not. I'm certainly not going to tell you that. Oh man, uh-huh. that scares me. That I know. Scares me. There, it's it's one of the non tentpole uh, Howard films that I'm. I'm. It may end up uh, on your watch list. Interesting. Yeah. Think about that. I, I think I know what it is. I don't think you do. I think I do. Take five, 1987 TV movie. <laughs> ah, got Gung, me. Gung ho. No. No. I know what it is. Damn it. I've said right. too much. <laughs> yes, you have. Yes, you have. No, but but I do I do like um I like him as a director. I just don't always like his films. Yeah. This the this the story of getting Splash made was actually an interesting one because they went around to all the studios trying to find somebody who was interested and they'd kind of develop one with the studio for a little bit and then the studio would finally say no and it kind of went back and forth. And if, no one wanted to uh, home, be a, a home for this film. And then they learned that there was another mermaid film that was going into production over at Warner Brothers that had Warren Beatty starring in it. And I can't remember uh, who the lady was who was going to be the mermaid, but it was going to be a much like a just a big budget mermaid film. And so they kind of had a panic and they ended up over at Disney and Disney liked Splash, and they thought that you know this would be a good film for them to do, but they were concerned that uh, about this other mermaid film. And Ron Howard told them, "Look, I can do it for less money. I can do it faster, and we can get it into theaters before them." And they liked that, and so they kind of came on board. But they were a little concerned about some of the stuff in the script. It was a little. They'd been going through an interesting period um, with some of their films that had been perceived as kind of non-Disney-ish sorts of films. Like starting in the late 70s, they did Black Hole, which was their first PG uh, film. And then they did just a, a series of other ones like Condor Man, Tron, Tex, Never Cry Wolf, Running Brave, Trench Coat. All these films that that people were starting to criticize. It's like, come on, this is this can't be a Disney film. There's way too many adult themes in this. 
And they were getting really nervous about that. And so when Splash, the script for Splash came along, they're like, you know, we're going to have to do something else about this. And they actually, especially because like, okay, you've got Daryl Hannah walking up onto the, uh, uh, the Statue of Liberty uh, park, completely naked. You've got some language in the film. You've got the whole like you know, the Swedish penis joke. Uh, just there's a lot of things in here that were a little more adult themed. And so instead of passing on the project, what they decided to actually do is create a new label. And so this film really is the birth of T Touchstone Pictures, which has been in, in front of many a Disney film since then. It's kind of become the label that is a little more adult. And then they've created some other ones like Hollywood Pictures, uh, which kind of was a little more for the, the fun, scary ones like Arachnophobia. Um, and, you know, Touchstone Pictures has certainly evolved over time, but this really was the birth of Touchstone Pictures. And once they created that label for it, Disney was just like, okay, you can make the film as is. We, don't, we aren't going to make you change anything in the script. And so they were able to actually move forward with it with the money they had, which was about $8 million. So, And then they got it done just fast, like Ron Howard said they would. And that other mermaid film that Warren Beatty was going to be in over at Warner Brothers completely fell apart because this one uh, got to the box office first and did so well. Huh. You know, I didn't catch any of that. I mean, I caught it when you just said it. <laughs> but that is actually fascinating. You just yeah, taught me something. It's, a, it's an interesting little uh, history about the, the way things get made in Hollywood. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, I do want to comment a, a little bit, um, just back on the production of the film, I want to comment on two things. The first one is uh, the actual mermaid, the mermaidification of Daryl Hannah. Mm -hmm. which should have been the title of the film. Because <laughs> that would have drawn the crowds in. Right. Uh, the uh, tale uh, was great, created by the visual effects artist Robert Short. Uh, it was, I thought it was great. It was apparently fully functional and let her outswim everyone. Mm -hmm. I thought it, I mean, it, that that's the one thing that didn't actually look weird and plastic to me in this film it looks fantastic it looks I mean, great I, i'm always uh, i'm always amazed when i watch it and as to how realistic everything about her as a mermaid works yeah she she actually said that the reason that she did so well i mean she didn't use a stunt person in the water or anything she did all of it herself she said when she was a kid she was just obsessed with um, the story of Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid. And she would, like, when she'd go swimming, she would practice swimming as if she were a mermaid. And so when she actually had this tail on, she just did what she always did as a kid. And she was, I mean, she literally was, like, born as a mermaid practically. And so uh, she did really well. She knew how to work that tail. Yeah. She, <laughs> Daryl Hannah. <laughs> I'll stop, you know, it's funny. I'll stop See, there. Uh, yeah, it's funny because yeah, she, like I said, she does have that quality about her that does seem a little unearthly. She does, and I think it worked. I, I, I think people really tapped into it in the early '80s because look at—I mean, you've got her in Blade Runner, you've got her in this, and you have her in Clan of the Cave Bear, all of which seem that to have that real more of an animalistic sort of uh, sensibility to the characters. You know, and I, I think both of those films really highlight her strength in a way that I find not highlighted here uh 
and and that sense. Oh God, I'm so glad you brought up Blade Runner, Runner, because you're you're like proving my point. That <laughs> sense of innocence that she has in that film uh, is precisely what I wanted to feel out of her in the first half of this film, right? And mm-hmm. I just don't feel like I get it. I can you're, you're exactly right. Like I totally get what you're saying here, but I don't get that sense of just plain wonder uh, that I get when she meets the toy maker in in Blade Runner. Like that mm-hmm. that sequence is beautiful. The way she interacts with the with the world. Um and, you know, so there you have it. Maybe we need more uh replicants in Splash. <laughs> Well, I think it I think it boils down to 80s love stories that is not selling you on her. <laughs> I I think that I mean Blade Runner, classic sci-fi film. So I'm going to I'm going to let you have that. Uh <laughs> the other thing that I think is fantastic is that the uh the location uh, uh, uh <laughs> where they uh you know first meet the new Daryl Hannah is Gordy K in the Bahamas is now Castaway K, the private island paradise of the Disney Cruise Line. I think that's awesome. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me that Disney is like, let's just buy it out. We're just going to buy own. it. Yeah. yeah it's going to be another <laughs> thing. Uh, anybody else you want to talk about uh, on this film? Well, you know, John Candy, we already said, was fantastic. I uh, Under, another... Underutilized. I, I don't think so. I, I think, think he's he utilized perfectly. I, I think that he's one of those characters who his comedy is is so great in this film that I would have... Felt like there was too much if they if they kept uh, having him in there. But I think know... that what ahead, what they have ahead. I think what they have in there is a perfect amount, and I think it rides the line of of naughty and and raucous. And I I don't know I I have no problem with him in this film. I think he's fantastic. I have a problem with him because I want more of him. And the, here's why I want more of him because at the end of the scene uh, at the end of the sequence when when Tom Hanks ne- ha- needs to have his big slap in the face turnaround uh so that he can go uh, actually fall in love with his mermaid girlfriend uh Candy comes up to him and says, "Let's look at what you got." And the "Let's look at what you got" speech is possibly one of the best speeches John Candy gives uh in film when he ends it with, "I will never be that happy." And that sequence with him is the is I think the only straight sequence we get of him, uh, and uh, I I could use more of that relationship with those two guys. I think it's really great. Well, yeah, I mean I'm not saying that more of that sort of relationship wouldn't work well in in the film, but I, I think I think that's what you the, said in the context <laughs> of the story that we have. I think that there's enough of him in there. Uh, I think you I think you said you don't like John Candy. <laughs> What I do love is that Tom Hanks and John Candy did end up working together again in the future in Volunteers, which is another film that that is a guilty pleasure for me. I know it's a completely terrible (laughs) film, but again, another film I've seen way too many times and I could probably quote way too many lines from that one. Awesome. Such a ridiculous movie, but I love it. John Candy and the tiger in that film is one of the funniest (laughs) things ever. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> all right. Uh, what else do you like about? Uh, what else do you want to talk about? Splash. The um, well, Eugene Levy. We already said is in uh, was SCTV, and yeah. I think he's. I love him as Corn Bluth. I think that he's great, and I do love his turn over the course of this film. 
And I think that the the other standout performance that I think is definitely worth uh, pointing out is Dodie Goodman as Mrs. Stimler, the secretary who is struck by lightning and now is just like the wackiest <laughs> comedy character you could put in a story. I mean, it's so fun. Every time they come in, there's some crazy thing going on with her because of this lightning strike that she suffered. And I love her in this film. She is uh, one of those actresses who had just been in everything. I mean, she had been, um, somebody described her southern cracked, uh, high-pitched, quivery voice tones as sounding like a Tweety Pie cartoon bird strangling on peanut butter. (laughs) (laughs) uh, She she had been in Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. She was in Greece. Uh, Just an actress who had done lots and lots of TV, different strokes, uh, Mary Tyler Moore. Uh, just uh, one of those people who's got a great voice and was a lot of fun to see pop up in this. She, she was every she she just lights up the screen wherever I see her. She was great every time she's on. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And then it being a Ron Howard film, he always is throwing in family cameos. We've got Rance Howard, his father, as the angry customer at the beginning, trying to you know oh, trying to the find his trying to find his yeah. cherries. Right. Yep. That's that's dad. And then Clint, his brother, is always in his films. And Clint's cameo is the one coming into the wedding who is just like, hi, Alan. <laughs> she left me, okay? She, that's, that's Clint. Yeah. He's the one that uh, he goes off on. So it's, uh, and then I believe this was um, you know, early in his career, and he was putting in his, I think his wife was one of the women at the wedding that his uh, brother, Freddie, was dropping the coins on the ground and looking up her skirt. Yes. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, excellent combination of uh, Howard family. Yes, uh, actors. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, so, uh, yeah. And then you know the other thing that I wanted to say is the uh, the cinematography in this film. Um, Donald I, Peterman. Yeah, I think looks uh, really great. It's he really specifically chose to not shoot this like a typical. Uh, comedy at the time, which was just very flat lighting. You know, a, a lot of times with comedies and romantic comedies, they just want the look to be flat and just straight because they want the comedy to stand out. He chose specifically to to light this as uh, more naturalistic because he wanted to create more of that romance with it. And so, like the moment when um, Alan goes into the police station to look for to to find Madison when she first pops up in New York. You know, he looks over at her on the benches behind, and you've got the the blinds right there, and that gorgeous light just coming through, and just the the way that the light looks. I mean, it is very romantic, and it is it is very beautiful lighting all through this film. If you watch it and you notice it, well, I think um, you know, I I agree with you about the the police station scene. I also think the real highlight sequences come for me, um, you know, in when she's in the tank. Uh, I think he does a fantastic job lighting the isolated water there and does some great things with the with the um you know her being backlit uh as her you know the tail is starting to the skin is starting to rot off the tail right uh and and there's just, there are some just wonderful uh sequences there and a lot of really interesting stuff of uh, um you know putting the camera at half height on the water so you see you know you see the the weird magnification of their shoulders under the water, even as they're having a conversation above the water right. uh, when Hanks and Hannah are in the tank together. And I think there's just really interesting use. There's another scene in there. I, who played the uh, the maniacal doctor um, with the mustache? 
Oh, um, might as well have been uh, twirling it. Yeah, right. You know, when, there's this sequence where he's stomping away. and the doc, Dr. Ross. Uh, Dr. Ross, right. Richard, and, Richard B. Shull. Richard B. Shull, that's the one. So when Shull looks down through the grate, and they have that exchange mm-hmm. um, through the grate, and he says, I don't consider you a colleague. Mm-hmm. Uh, I That's one of my favorite um, uh, moves of the camera there as uh, the exchange between uh, Dr. Kornbluth and Dr. Um, Richard Shaw, Dr. Ross. Dr. Ross, uh, yeah. That was fantastic. Yeah. He had been in Clute. Yes. That's right. That's right. That's yeah. where I that's where we've heard him. Yeah. Uh okay. What else? Um the score is very dated, but I still like it. Lee Holdridge did the music for the film. Yes. It does have a very dated feel to it. I definitely give you that. And throwing the Rita Coolidge song on at the end. It does not work. It definitely gives you uh, the dated feel. Yes, I'm still a sucker for that song. I admit it. I I just, yeah, I unabashedly love this film. What can I say? (laughs) Every piece. Uh, Yeah. And then, you know, the last thing that I wanted to say is this film, because uh, of the way that Tom Hanks basically names Mattis or names the mermaid because he can't say her name. He gives her the name Madison, which she really likes because they happen to be on Madison Avenue in New York city. This film created an upsurge in the name Madison in, in girls. And it had hardly been used at all. Like in the seventies, like nothing. And then in the eighties, all of a sudden it, it started becoming really popular because of this film and the the name just skyrocketed to the point where uh i think right now in the where we are right now in the 2000s it's like one of the top 10 gr- names for girls being born right now it's just amazing how popular that name is and it's because of this film being born right now the second that somebody's listening to this <laughs> <laughs> wow that's grim that's a um, lot of them. The uh, I'm so I'm scrolling through. There's a fantastic uh, link with an animated GIF of of the most popular baby names by state between 1961 and today. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to find where Madison takes off because it does. You're right. It's you can watch the map by state as Madison just sort of sweeps the country. Yeah, and I'm looking at it on babynamewizard.com. In the 70s, it's zero. In the 80s, it's uh, ranked at 538. In the 90s, it's 29. And then in the as of 2005, it was number three. Yeah, wow. In 2002, it's everywhere. Yeah. And then Emma makes a strong showing. Hmm, uh, and then Madison comes back in 2004. Madison comes back with a bullet. In 2004, uh, Emma's still putting up a fight, uh, but wow, by, uh, <laughs> get a load of this, by 2012, Sophia Olivia, and Olivia are making, mm-hmm. and Emma are making an incredible comeback. And, and uh, one, of, one of my daughter Olivia's best friends is named Madison. And my daughter Sophie and her, one of her best friends is Emma. <laughs> See? It's not where we just fit into the the norm. <laughs> oh, I look guess. at us, the norm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. I at this movie, uh, given what it cost to make, uh, did uh, pretty darn well. Yeah, this film, uh, like I said, it made it cost about eight million to make. In today's dollars, that's almost eighteen million. 
and uh, I, I couldn't find any other figures as far as prints and advertising and everything. But it, uh, yeah, it made uh, domestically uh, almost seventy million dollars, which adjusted would be about one hundred and fifty-six million dollars. Uh, couldn't find any international figures, but all told, you know, that still is pretty good. And you know, adjusted profit per finished minute, we're looking at about uh, one point two million per finished minute. So yeah, it's it's up there. It's uh, right below all the president's men as far as uh, films that uh, are, are adjusted for uh, profit per finished minute. I wonder how it'll do in our stack ranking. <laughs> I say uh, we uh, flick chart this thing. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You can like us over there. Become our friend on Flickchart, and you can uh, we can see if we like the same movies. That'd be good. Mm-hmm. You should do that. All right, Splash or Gattaca. <laughs> this is going to be such a hard ranking because... I have a feeling we're going to be averaging like, a lot of our scores. Like yeah. the head or the heart sort yeah. of ranking. Yeah. I would pick Splash over Gattaca. Yeah, see, I would pick Gattaca. Oh, how important is it to you? It's it's come on, Gattaca is just so boring. It's like one of the. <laughs> I just can't sell you. I don't know. Oh, you know, I you know, Andy, I'm not a man who isn't willing to be bought. <laughs> just I just want you to look at the rest of the list and think to yourself, uh, what else is this going to go up against that you're going to feel even stronger about? Well then, I, hopefully I think... we'll never reach it. If you go with me. <laughs> I'm going to give you. I'll, I'll give you uh, Gattaca for now. All right. Yes. Yes. All right. Splash or the Outlaw Josie Wales. <laughs> oh, this is just not fair. And I, I'm going to say Splash. Are but you I serious? Just... Seriously? You don't know how many times I've seen this film. It's you know, I'm. It's locked into my brain. But I will give you Outlaw Josie Wales. All right. How's that? I, that's good. That's fair. Splash or The Natural? The Baseball Ghost Story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to perpetually have that locked into my brain now. <laughs> the Baseball Ghost Story. <laughs> oh, man. Both the 1984 films, Splash and better than The Natural. I say we vote on uh, how much money it made. Let's do Splash. Versus the natural based on, on total uh, box office receipts. <laughs> oh. Then Splash, you're saying Splash wins it. Yes. All right. I mean, I can't think of any other way to do it when we just disagree like this. I know. Splash or the social network. Oh, come on. I'm giving you the social network. Uh, I agree. All right. I'm not even giving it to you. I, I you agree. Okay. Splash or Zero Dark Thirty. Zero Dark Thirty. Okay. Now, now I'm hearing some reasonable behavior. <laughs> oh, it's like it's like my 12 year old is coming out. What can I say? <laughs> I'm taking my ball and my laser discs, and I'm going home. <laughs> Splash or the Maltese Falcon? Well, I can feel this one coming. <laughs> I, I will give you Maltese Falcon. It's a it's a classic. God, I feel like you're gonna like send somebody to collect one of my fingers. Now here's an interesting one. Splash or Joe versus the volcano. Oh, 
This is going to torture you. It's no per- no sweat. For no, me. it's 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 Joe versus Volcano for me. Oh. But I just I found it really interesting. Uh, Tom Hanks comparison, especially because Joe versus the Volcano is looked at with such disdain, whereas Splash is looked at as you know as a as a such a big critical success. But I do think uh, Joe is the uh, more unique story. Interesting, compelling, and funny, and not just funny, but witty. Yeah. Like there is there is wit and subversive wit in that film that I think is really fascinating. Yeah, I agree. All right, Splash is number forty five out of one hundred twenty one. I know that's much higher than you'd like. <laughs> that that's that's fair. That it you know everything moves. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Well, this was a tough one to to do, but I'm pretty excited about next week. Where do we go from here? Well, we are going to be, you know, I feel like we should have planned this to be hitting every 10 years in his career, uh, because next year we're going 10 years to Forrest Gump. And then we could have gone to uh, 2004, but, you know, 2014, he hasn't had anything yet, so it would have been a little hard this year, but still. Well, I'm excited about it. I am, too. I'm very excited about Forrest Gump. I love the film, and I'm excited to revisit it. Me too. This is uh, now, you know, this this gives us, I think, more meat for me. For you, <laughs> <laughs> it's well, it's definitely a, a more of a meaty film. Splash is. I mean, going back to you know when we had our series on romantic comedies. It definitely fits into the vibe of those films that we were talking about there. I mean, it may not be as as you know smart as like Five Hundred Days of Summer, or uh, you know what I can't remember what the other ones. But I mean, it but it definitely fits within that genre more. And I think in that context, um, being a genre that it's it's not one of the genres that typically either of us jump to when we're going to pick a movie. True. I think that it's, and being that kind of that plasticky 80s, I can see why that for a lot of people, it's a film that it's not going to be one that they want to put on as regularly. Yeah. And Forrest Gump, and it's, it's you know, it's kind of just that, that love story. That's the story. Whereas Forrest Gump does have a lot more meat going on in it. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. Uh, okay. I, you know, I feel like our relationship has survived another disagreement. <laughs> uh, next week, Splash 2. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I gotta go to bed. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. 
Okay, we're going to play a little game, Pete. I'm going to name a series from season three, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. Oh, <laughs> you and your games. All right, first up, drama of the Brothers Cohen. Okay, that's super easy because the Cohen brothers so rarely do adaptations. It's no country for old men. Okay, how about rom-com? Okay, let's see. Not Sleepless in Seattle. Uh, about a boy. Yep, one more. Hmm. Uh, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist? There it is, you got it. We have covered lots of great movies that started as books, and most of those are on Audible. Books like Forrest Gump, Apollo 13, Being There, or The Day of the Locust. The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, and City of God. So many great movies from so many great sources. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but it takes a lot of time. We have dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they are so annoying and they have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things wherever they see fit. We listened when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it, too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. 